Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictive compulsive behaviors. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book and workbook, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have direct and honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Dr. Tom Murray, a distinguished figure in intimate relationships, has been featured in numerous venues, including Washington Post, Huffington Post, and the Daily Mail. As a dynamic presenter at national conferences and esteemed institutions, he seamlessly blends contemplative psychology and stoic philosophy with conventional methods in his clinical practice. His award-winning book, Making Nice with Naughty, explores the intricate dynamics of self-control and its impact on sexual and intimate relationships. We have Dr. Tom Murray with us, and Tom is going to be discussing something I've never talked about, and I don't know how many therapists or, or our listeners have heard of this before, but we're going to be talking about the overcontrolled temperament. To begin with, Tom, what, what is the OC? Or down here, it's Orange County. But anyway, <laughs> what does the overcontrolled temperament really mean? Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show, Andrew. I'm so delighted to be here and to provide this content to your listeners. The overcontrolled temperament is essentially when people have too much self-control. The opposite of the overcontrolled temperament is the undercontrolled temperament, right? And undercontrolled people tend to be more impulsive, carefree, have their feelings on their their sleeve, where overcontrolled people tend to be much more planful, diligent. Um, they tend to prefer routines. They prefer order. They're afraid of uncertainty. And of course, many of those features can be quite uh, an asset, but in the extreme, they become maladaptive where they interfere with people's lives. And, and uh, that's the approach that I took in my book of looking at how that temperament impacts sex and intimate relationships. Hmm. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on how it interferes with people's lives. Part of um, our ability to have a positive mental health framework, right? Is that we're, we, as, as David Lynch, the uh, um, developer of radically open dialectical behavior therapy says, is that mental health is really about cultivating a life worth sharing. So how mm. are we uh, in relationship to others? Mm. Are, we, are we psychologically flexible or are we so rigid that we aren't willing to express vulnerability, for example, uh, and how vulnerability is so closely tied to uh, developing intimacy with others. And, and so those who, who are afraid of the uncertainty that comes with vulnerability may pull back to avoid that, that negative feeling and, at the, and, and thus be uh, uh, not developing those important relationships. I was caught with the expression of life worth sharing, 
Yes. right? I've heard so many times a life worth living, but a life worth sharing is the relational piece of that, which of course we know is, is part of what's uh, not only necessary, but how we're biologically wired. So say more about that, a life worth sharing. I think that's so vital. Yeah, uh, you're, you, as you kind of mentioned, our ability to navigate uh, important relationships certainly uh, lends to a lot of positive health effects, right? If I can frame it maybe this way, in the extreme of the OC, Mm -hmm. So uh, 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 these are well. First of all, these are temperaments, and temperaments, as as many of the listeners may know, are are neither good nor bad. And two right. of the most famous temperaments are introversion, extroversion, mm -hmm. right? So it's neither good nor bad, but it's really talking about maladaptability. And so at the far end of the OC temperament, we have diagnoses like anorexia. Uh, we have um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, not to be confused with OCD. We would have a schizoid personality disorder. Sometimes very chronic depression and anxiety is a function of the OC uh, temperament. And so what a lot of those uh, core features have in common are these uh, uh, four deficits, Mm. that Thomas Lynch's uh, research found. And one of those is that very low openness uh, and receptivity to novel experiences, to the unexpected, mm -hmm. right? And you can imagine, particularly as it relates to sex and intimacy, if I am unwilling or unopen to novel and unexpected uh, uh, experiences, then relationships can become quite stale pretty quick. Sure. Right, or if I feel like sex has to be at two o'clock on Saturday mm. every week, mm -hmm. right, or uh, you know I, that I don't want it to be uh, spontaneous, I need to know exactly when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. Those kinds of uh, features, uh, you could see how that would negatively impact relationships. Kind of the uh, example too, another one is um, low flexible control, so that need to have structure and order. And mm. the example I give in the book is uh, those people who go behind their partners to rearrange the dishwasher because it wasn't done right. <laughs> right. <laughs> or they won't, you know, they don't want anybody <clears throat> to fold their laundry because they have a very specific way. Well, when, when OC people do those, and I'm an OC person, mm. And, and a disproportionate number of therapists tend to lean OC, mm -hmm. right? Then the general, we're, we're overly represented. Interesting. If I show up in those rigid kinds of ways, then that's communicating to my partner something, mm -hmm. right? Which it tends to be, is not positive, right? That somehow I'm communicating to them that they are not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Well, that has an impact on a, on a relationship. Versus if I'm accepting of how they do things and the unique ways that they do things, now mm -hmm. we're cu cultivating a life worth sharing. That's beautiful. First of all, I appreciate you mentioning your OC tendencies. I can also uh, fall into that category for sure. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about how the healing trajectory partially has to do with flexibility has to do with actually playfulness and fun, mm. has to do with improvisation. 
and all of these qualities are, are part of sex and intimacy, right? So you bet. I, I, I really hear how vital this is for those of us who carry these survival strategies from a young age, but it outlasts its purpose. That's right. That's right. I, I often say that a personality is the sum of all of your best attempts to survive childhood. And in many ways, uh, the OC temperament can really be a powerful tool to survive childhood, especially a childhood that is surrounded by chaos, right? Mm -hmm. And you, and the mm -hmm. mind says, okay, if I can just be good enough, if I can be perfect enough, bad things won't happen to me. And so mm -hmm. as a consequence, uh, uh, they develop, we develop these kinds of skills that um, help us to navigate uh, life. For example, one of the, the, uh, the third uh, core deficit mm -hmm. is inhibited emotional expression. So if, if, you know, an OC person, if they're anxious or depressed on the inside, the world out there would never notice. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you ask an OC person who's anxious or depressed on the inside, how are they doing? Their favorite F word is fine. <laughs> right? How are you doing? I'm oh, fine. Fine. Yeah. If they are angry and upset, maybe agitated, uh, they may use their other favorite F word, mm -hmm. frustrated. Mm. I'm frustrated. This is frustrating. Mm -hmm. And so you'll hear that. That's kind of that kind of uh, a very um, contained way of expressing emotions. In fact, if you can, you know, we uh, uh, listeners won't see this, but my hands are really centered into my body. And that that when when OCs communicate, you'll notice that their hands very rarely extend beyond the perimeter of their sides. Mm. Where you see people, their hands are all over the place. Mm -hmm. Right, um, because there's this there's this tendency towards a constrained emotional expression. I'll give you mm -hmm. another example. When I was in graduate school, uh, I had a professor uh, review my tapes, and he says, "Tom, you have perfect perfected the poker face." <laughs> he said the problem with that, however, mm -hmm. is that when people are giving you information, they have no sense of what you're doing with it. Later, years later, I remember sitting with a, a patient, mm -hmm. and uh, this was when I was a director of a university counseling center, and the patient said, uh, you know, Tom, I get this, this strange feeling that at any moment, you're just going to pull a knife from behind your back and eviscerate me. Wow. But that was the projection, mm -hmm. you see? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I came back with a kind of psychodynamic response of, so you're afraid you might, I might make you spill your guts. But what he was really getting at was when we have a blank face, when we have a neutral face, mm -hmm. the other experiences that as threatening, right? So go to your partner and ask your partner, just look at me with a neutral face. Mm -hmm. You just experience what that looks like. By the way, what happens when we look at our iPhones? We have mm -hmm. a neutral face. Sure. And if we have young children around and we're just mm -hmm. on our iPhones, what they see is a neutral face. And that is not cultivating a life we're sharing, which brings us to the fourth deficit. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? Which is low social connectedness, mm-hmm. right? A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of OC people tend to be aloof, tend to have distant relationships. Um, they're afraid of. Uh, 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 there's the invisible audience that we a lot of OCs have, which is, I'm afraid of what other people might be thinking. Right, and so as a consequence, they tend to pull away socially, while at the same time, they may have a, a lot of envy, a lot of bitterness. They may have reduced empathy because they see how other people are successful and wondering why they haven't been so successful. So again, uh, uh, that uh, contributes to uh, lives of isolation. In fact, one of the more common complaints that OCE people talk about is loneliness. Hmm. Sometimes profound loneliness. Yes. Oh, you bet. Yeah. You bet. So we're, we're talking about folks who are, are having a lot of difficulty connecting, having a lot of difficulty, even knowing what's going on. I was thinking about somatically what, what's really going on in their body. It sounds like it's it's really like being imprisoned in some ways for folks who mm. have extreme OC. You know, I, I was thinking about out of control sexual behavior. And what's interesting in my own story is that I, I definitely had this kind of contained, constricted way of, of being in the world to some extent, not not too extreme. But I also was breaking a lot of rules and and going out and acting out sexually and having all of that kind of of extreme um, exploration, so to speak. And and so in a way, I think when we're talking about therapeutic direction for folks like this, can you can you speak to to that for a moment? Like how how do people who have this or who identify this in themselves or in loved ones, how do they get better? Yeah, yeah. So if I may, can I can I swing back to something you just mentioned? Of course. Um uh before I answer that. A lot of OC people will still do behaviors that appear impulsive, such as out-of-control sexual behavior. How, uh, and, and so it's important that when you're trying to figure out whether some, where someone falls on the UC-OC continuum, that you're not just paying attention to the behavior. So a, a good example of this are people who cut, right? Mm-hmm. Those who cut or who self-injure, one would naturally think, oh, that must be UC. That's Mm -hmm. a UC behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, why would you do it, right? But some of these people who cut, when you you ask them to to talk about what goes on uh, uh, with themselves prior to the cutting, they might say, um, oh, you know, I think all day about cutting. I think about where I'm going to cut, how I'm going to cut, how deeply am I going to cut. I think about how to, where to put it on my body so that nobody notices. I think mm. about the post-cut care. How am I going to take care of myself? Well, all of that planning is an example of OC. That is sure. a clear indication that that is not impulsive, mm-hmm. but quite planned, mm-hmm. right? Um, in a similar vein people may uh, engage in out-of-control sexual behavior, but they have already constructed their own set of rules. I will only do it here, during Mm. this time, under these certain circumstances. 
I'll only go to、uh, the other person's house. I will not let anybody at my house, or vice versa. I will only do it at my house so that、mm-hmm. I have, I have a, a firm sense of where everything is.、Mm-hmm. So on one hand, they can you can think, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna have indiscriminate sex with people, that seems very you see,、mm. but it's、um, very much an indication of an OC style, right? And and historically, di-、uh, dialectical behavior therapy、mm-hmm. (DBT) was designed for UC folks, so the、mm-hmm. borderline personality disorder, for example,、mm-hmm. narcissistic personality. And what Thomas Lynch found is that when he looked at their that UC OC component. He found that those who are already OC became more OC in the DBT group,、hmm. because the DBT group is all about emotional self-regulation.、Mm. Well, OC people are experts at emotional self-regulation, <laughs> right? They are able to delay gratification like nobody else,、mm. right? So he developed radically open dialectical behavior therapy、uh, for that OC style, which is, as you talked about earlier, is a, a style to help them relax their grip around rules, to relax their need for predictability, conformity, to allow for greater spontaneity and fun in their lives. So, in essence, to learn how to turn down that volume on their OC temperament without an expectation that. They'll ever become UC.、Mm, sure, thank you for for sharing those details. That that not only makes a lot of sense, but it it also points out how、um, important it is to know this both as clinicians and for our listeners to to get a sense of how that can look one way, but is actually the other. That's right. The, and, and to the a piece is to use a strategy. That best、mm-hmm. fits with that particular client's psychology. To give you an example,、mm-hmm. there I'm drawing a blank on the study,、uh, the name of the study, but, but there was a study that looked at the the explanatory style of、um, those who had problematic drinking, right? And and what they found is that if someone's explanatory style for their alcohol use was that it was a disease. They did much better in a twelve-step style program,、mm. but the people who thought of their problematic drinking as more of a bad habit、mm-hmm. did worse in AA.、Mm-hmm. Did better in more of the alternative non-AA approaches,、mm-hmm. right? More of the maybe、um, the the moderation management approaches.、Mm-hmm. So. You know that concept of how do we listen to the client's theory of change, and then route them into treatment models that reflect their theory of change, rather than forcing everybody into the 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 approach that we're offering at this particular clinic at this particular time. Right. So we can't put a square peg in a round hole. Right. Right. For sure. Okay.、Yeah. So why don't we shift gears a little bit, and I I want to talk about how this applies to to sex and intimacy. So,、mm. can, so Tom, can you explain how desire diminishes in monogamous relationships? How does that work? Yeah, yeah.、Uh, there's a a finding, you know, that in monogamy, 
monogamy comes with its own occupational hazards. And one is that for every year that a couple's together, they're liking each other declines 4%, and they're lusting declines 8%. So why might that be the case? Well, uh, I, I often use the, the metaphor of, of the beach. A lot of people go to the beach, they, they decide, you know what, I love the beach so much, I'm going to buy a house at the beach, right? <laughs> and, and I'm going to be at the beach every day. Mm-hmm. And when they move to the beach, what happens? They're at the beach every day. And then there comes a moment when life happens and they're like, oh, I'm going to take care of this thing because I know the beach is already going to be here. Mm-hmm. So I'll take care of this thing and then go to the beach tomorrow. Well, what happens tomorrow? Life. And they don't go to the beach the next day. Mm-hmm. And so in a similar vein, what happens in marriage is that uh, our partner no longer becomes uh, uh, exciting to us. They just become another th- an, uh, uh, another artifact in our life. But there's this, there's this thought that they're always going to be here tomorrow. So I don't mm-hmm. have to invest in the relationship today. Mm-hmm. I can put off and, and wait until tomorrow. But what happens? Tomorrow never comes. And so you see this decline in in desire. The other piece is that we desire things more when we feel a sense of competition around it. Hmm. So I don't know if you've ever bid on anything on eBay, but when you know that someone else is bidding on it, Mm -hmm. you're inclined to want it more. Or there have been studies that show that if you're waiting for a parking spot, waiting for someone to get out of the parking spot. Mm -hmm. The person in the parking spot spends more time in the spot when someone's waiting for it than if no one is waiting for it. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So so that (laughs) impacts desire. The other thing is that I distinguish the difference between closeness and intimacy. Hmm. Most of my couples, and I'm primarily a couples and sex therapist, mm-hmm. most of my couples, when they come in, they often will say, uh, we're, we're, we're not close enough. And I can spend a few, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes with them, and I realize, ooh, they're too close. They're too close because they have, they have a focus on low risk, low anxiety, high predictability, comfort, familiarity. Hmm. Intimacy, on the other hand, is high risk, high anxiety, low predictability, newness, novelty. So think of of, of the first dates with someone, mm-hmm. or affairs for that matter. What are affairs? High risk, high anxiety, low predictability, newness, novelty. So you can have a lot of desire there. Unfortunately, that burns hot and it's unsustainable. Mm. And so closeness comes in uh, as it needs to in order to know who's going to pay this bill, who's going to pick up the kids, who's going to do that and the other thing. But at its extreme, closeness will push out intimacy and drive down desire. That's really, really important for us to to dive into further. Um, we don't have the kind of time to do that, but I'm just very struck with how there's a myth um, oftentimes about what closeness really is. And what I hear you saying is that to keep the aliveness in the relationship, to keep that 
that fire going, the heat, um, requires all of those elements. And and yet there's almost a, uh, I don't know, it just sounds like there's this idea that, that some of us will create um, that doesn't really match with what's vital for the relationship yes. to 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 grow. Yes, yes. I um I might get into trouble when I say this. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> but uh I'm a firm believer that the Hallmark channel has done more damage to our appreciation of relationships than porn. <laughs> and I use Hallmark channel as a metaphor, but this yeah. Hollywood notion of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Right, is much more damaging uh, than than pornography has been to relationships. I mean, I've even had people in my office say that they just want a hallmark marriage, as if that's actually attainable, right? But it's not. Life is way more complicated, right? Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. it, 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 there's a lot of work to be that's necessary. In fact. Uh, people are so allergic to having conflict in their marriage that they think any conflict is evidence of something bad when conflict is the only place, the only space where ev the evolution of a relationship can take place. If a single-celled organism in that protozoic soup at the beginning of time was completely comfortable, mm -hmm. evolution would have never happened. Yeah. I always say that conflict is an opportunity for deeper contact. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's great, Tom. So you you were sharing with me that this idea of the wanting versus willing dynamic. So can you describe the wanting versus willing dynamic and, and why willingness to have sex is so important? Yeah. Uh, one of the myths that uh, uh, is perpetuated is that everyone should want or desire, have a sense of desire around sex, that that has to come first. I want, I desire to have sex. And and what that's built out of is what uh, Emily Nagoski calls the spontaneous desire model, mm. that uh, I should just spontaneously think about sex and want to have it, right? <laughs> and that is typical of male desire, if you will. Right. And it's often what's shown in pornography, this kind of spontaneous, you know, the, the the plumber comes to the house and bam, I'm just ready to go. That message uh has really hurt people's understanding of sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. There are two other types of desire. There's responsive desire and then there's contextual desire. Responsive desire is that. Uh, you just need a little bit of a clue that your partner's interested and you're like, oh, I know what we're doing here. So if my partner rubs my leg, oh, I know what we're doing here. And then there's contextual desire, which is more of this dance between uh, uh, these accelerators and inhibitors as it comes to sex. So an accelerator may be... Um, uh, my partner uh, is uh, washing the dishes. I find that very attractive. Or my partner is, you know, just came home from the gym and they look all sweaty. That's really attractive. Whereas <laughs> others, uh, that may make them unattractive, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. So with contextual desire, they don't have spontaneous desire. They may not have a want, a register, a want, but they may have a willing. So for a lot of people, particularly women, 
they will have a want once they get started. So it doesn't initially register as a want, mm -hmm. but they will get started and, and then now they're in it, now they're going along and now they're ready, you see? But if they bought the myth that they have to feel the want first, mm. they may go inside, do I want it? Nope. Do I want it? Nope. But willingness, particularly in the context of a monogamous relationship, mm -hmm. to underscore that, yeah. is a much better question. Am I willing to be turned on than, uh, uh, versus uh, am I already turned on? Mm -hmm. It's a question, Tom. If, if someone is able to be open-hearted to the willingness that you're describing, they still have the option to say yes, no, or maybe. Is that correct? They, uh, they absolutely do. In fact, it's important that no always be an option because it is the ability to give a no that gives the yes its meaning. If you could only say yes, then the yes wouldn't have any meaning. Mm -hmm. That being said, when it comes to monogamy, I'm afraid that I'm going to sound like I'm anti-monogamous, which I am by far not anti-monogamous, mm -hmm. uh, but it does come with its own set of occupational hazards that I don't think people really talk about. Mm -hmm. And one of those is uh, the rights and responsibilities to sex mm -hmm. to, to, uh, within a monogamous relationship. So within monogamy, the right is that each partner gets to enjoy the other's bodies in ways that other people don't have access to, mm -hmm. right? That's the right. You get to enjoy my body, I get to enjoy your body in ways that other people don't get to. Mm -hmm. The responsibility, and this is the piece that gets mistaken here or mm -hmm. forgotten, the responsibility is that in this monogamous relationship, I am responsible to be interested in the sexual needs of the other. Mm -hmm. I get to, I, I'm responsible for checking in with my partner. Are, are your sexual needs satisfied? Or are we on the same page around that? Mm -hmm. and, and all too often, what happens is someone just stops being interested. And then they get angry that their partner is, is interested. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what has happened is the part, non-interested partner has now forced the other into celibacy. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't acknowledge that enough. It is totally appropriate, totally accepted, acceptable for someone not to be interested in sex anymore. But it's not acceptable to expect that the other will also not be interested. Sure. Right. Wow. So that particular issue around monogamy and the occupational hazards, as you call it, is fraught with um, with issues and tentacles that go in all kinds of directions. I, I, I'm very um, stimulated as you're talking to consider another uh, episode just on that alone, because I think <laughs> the idea of the occupational hazards of, of monogamy is not talked about enough. That's right. And yet it's so essential to actually find ways to to be fully yourself and and to have those honest conversations. So important, so important. Especially with couples when they come in 
Low sexual desire is one of the most common complaints that a sex therapist is going to encounter. Mm -hmm. And I will ask a couple, are you monogamous? And they'll often look strangely at each other, you know? And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They haven't had sex in, in many months, maybe years. And then I ask them, well, what is the definition of monogamy? And they will uh, eventually come to, well, sex with one person. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. Monogamy is sex with one person. So if you're not having sex and monogamy is sex with one person, then you're not monogamous. Wow. You're something else. I don't know what that something else is, but let's not be confused. Mm -hmm. right? Now, I, of course, don't define for the couple what sex means. Right. It's not exclusively penetration. Mm -hmm. But if they themselves agree that what they are doing is not sex, mm -hmm. right? Sure. And so highlighting the importance of that mm -hmm. uh, is, is vital in, in moving the pendulum in a different direction so that mm -hmm. they are reframing that, oh, we do have a responsibility to each other to be interested in the sexual needs of the other. Mm, very well said. You know, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask one last question, which I often ask at the end of our episodes. If there was one or two takeaways that you would like our listeners to be sure to hold on to from this conversation, what, what would they be? Making Nice with Naughty is uh, the book that I wrote, is really an invitation to uh, be rebellious. Uh, many people who are over-controlled learn to live within this really strict set of rules and expectations of themselves and others. They may have been told, you know, being, don't be naughty, that's bad. Or, or if you just live by the rules, if you do what you're told, you're, 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 you'll live a happy and successful life. But that can make living life less have less vitality, as you kind of mentioned earlier. Sure. And, and so I'm inviting folks who read my book, I'm inviting them to be rebellious. I'm not talking about doing things that they uh, uh, find particularly dangerous, but uh, being rebellious in the sense that they are able to pursue sex for the pleasure of it, rather mm. than with this uh, a goal orientation that so many people, particularly OCs, tend to lead with. It, it, is my partner being satisfied? And is my partner getting what they want? But in an almost neurotic, anxious fashion. Mm -hmm. And they give uh, not enough attention to the question of, am I satisfied? Is this pleasurable for me? What do I need to do differently to have a good time in this uh, 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 sexual experience with my partner to really reclaim their own uh, 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 sexual identity so that it is they're led by pleasure and, and less by performance. Mm. And, and, and lastly, I would say, particularly for my OC readers, many of them are highly allergic to feeling awkward. And yet, what is awkward? High risk, high anxiety, low predictability, newness, novelty. Awkward is an indication that you're moving in a direction that it will allow you to discover something new about yourself. And see that as a, as a form of uh, an aphrodisiac, right? <laughs> that that is something to move toward mm -hmm. rather than to step away from. That's great. I think that's an awesome place for us to uh, wind down today. 
I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Tom. It's been a pleasure meeting you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I feel like we just brushed the surface of a lot of really, really important issues that I'm so glad you're out there um, spreading the word because there's a, a lot of folks that don't understand these issues. And I, there's also a lot of healing that can uh, continue to happen. So it's wonderful having you. And um, I, I certainly am, am pleased that we could spend the time together. Thank you, Andrew. You've been a delight. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening today. It was so great sharing the time with my colleague, Dr. Tom Murray, and discussing this really significant topic. He can be reached through his website at makingnicewithnaughty.com. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected.